The blueberry industry is like no other, passionate, resilient, and innovative. This podcast is your source for the latest information on the production, markets, research, and technology related to blueberry production. This is the business of blueberries. Here's your host, president of the U.S. Highbush Blueberry Council, Casey Cronquist. Welcome back to another episode of The Business of Blueberries, the only podcast dedicated exclusively to the blueberry industry. Time has flown by since our virtual conference and expo, but what an incredible gathering that was. We heard from so many of you who took the time to take our survey and shared your support and appreciation for the effort to bring the industry together best we could and provide timely and relevant information, and should I say inspiring information for our industry and stakeholders. I certainly want to thank our sponsors for their support as well. We couldn't have done it without them. In fact, if you missed anything, thanks to their support, or you weren't able to attend, all of the sessions are now live at blueberryevents.org. So go back and take a listen to anything you might've missed or listen again. Most of you already know how important health research has been to the global blueberry market, but there is so much opportunity left in this area. You've heard us talk about this in previous episodes of the podcast, like with Dave Brazelton in episode 12, and Denny Doyle in episode 16, but today we get specific. What does the latest research tell us about the health properties of blueberries? And where are there still questions to be explored in the future of blueberry research? We're going to talk about all of that and more with Dr. Eric Rim on today's episode. If you attended our virtual conference and expo, you got to hear Dr. Rim's powerful presentation. Today, we're going to unpack that a little bit further. Dr. Eric Grimm is the Professor of Epidemiology and Nutrition and the Director of Program in Cardiovascular Epidemiology at the Harvard T.H. Chan School of Public Health. He is also a Professor of Medicine at the Harvard Medical School. Dr. Rim has received the international recognition for his extensive work in health impacts of moderate alcohol consumption, blueberries, whole grains, micronutrients, and polyphenols, among other activities, he also serves on the USHBC Health Research Committee Science Advisory Board. Eric, thanks so much for joining us today on the business of blueberries. Glad to be back, Casey. Thank you for inviting me. So your presentation to us a few weeks ago was outstanding. As I was saying earlier, before we started, it's caused me to start eating more blueberries. (laughs) And I was already eating a fair amount of blueberries, but the consistency and and the message you shared was certainly inspiring to me as well. And so I'm really excited to dive into some of that information because, you know, I think it really does anchor in a lot of what our industry has benefited from in terms of success and understanding about blueberries. But first, I thought it'd be fun to share some of your background with agriculture and blueberries growing up and what ultimately led you down this path of being involved in the work you do for blueberries in your professional career. Thanks, Casey. Growing up, I don't think I consciously said, oh, this is going to lead me to blueberry research. But once I got to blueberry research, I could look back to my childhood and go, you know, I grew up in an apple orchard and I planted 10,000 apple trees that was like my childhood job. I just thought this is what people do. <laughs> they just do what their parents tell them to do. And so I, you know, I was involved with food production and making cider, but we, I grew up in Wisconsin and, you know, the Michigan blueberry growers at that time were for us were sort of our access to the best juiciest blueberries. So we had uh, neighbors that used to go up to the upper peninsula and come back with just loads of blueberries. And I just remember every year looking forward to the 
two trips they made up a year when they brought back those blueberries and then we would freeze them and make things and have them probably for the next six months. So blueberries have always been my favorite fruit, despite the fact that I grew up on an apple orchard. So I think when I got to Harvard and started working in the field of nutritional epidemiology, I don't think I had a laser focus on blueberries, but when we started looking at polyphenols and looking at blueberries has been such a strong contributor to our polyphenol intake, it was a good way to tie my childhood to my professional career. That's cool. Well, and, you know, I'm imagining that all those were handpicked out there in Michigan at that time. You know, they were, you pick farms and that's part of the exercise. So in your talk, you talked about the importance of young people growing up on blueberries and how important that target market is in terms of what your experience has been. Certainly the difference from my experience growing up in Montana, you know, not that we didn't have blueberries, but it just wasn't the culture of the Northeast, the East Coast, and certainly, you know, obviously in places like Michigan where the crop was so prevalent. So that is a really cool connection. Absolutely. But we're going to talk a lot more about the importance of the research you're doing. But as you might know, we like to do a crop report. This is a weekly update of what's happening with the blueberry production supplying our market. Now that we're in the fall season, it has been really interesting and important to understand what's happening with the production coming out of South America. In the weeks ahead, we're going to be hearing directly from Chile and Peru and eventually Mexico again. So here, once again, is your blueberry crop report. It's time for the Blueberry Crop Report, an update on crop conditions and markets from important blueberry areas around the globe. Today you'll hear from Andres Armstrong in Chile, Luis Vegas in Peru, and Jose Luis Bustamante in Mexico. This was recorded in October of 2020. My name is Andres Armstrong. I represent the Chilean Blueberry Committee. For our um, 2021 season, we are forecasting 246 million pounds, which is just uh, 2% higher than our previous season. Although the, in terms of volume, there are not great variations. What is really changing in Chile is the mix of varieties with new varieties growing very steadily. Even though our major exports are the ones of traditional varieties, the ones are really growing and um, taking every year a bigger uh, share of the market of uh, new varieties being uh, planted in Chile. Another positive aspect for this season is the bigger uh, availability of water. In some of our regions, we have faced some droughts. This year, we, have, uh, we had a greater amount of water falling during the winter and more accumulation of snow in the mountain ranges have given the growers of the, this region a better scenario compared to the one of uh, last year with the uh, lack of water. What is also changing in Chile is the growth of our blueberry exports uh, to different markets. Last season, uh, Europe grew by 32% in our shipments. Asia grew 15% compared to the US market where our fresh exports dropped by 11%. The normal arriving weeks uh, of Chilean blueberries into the US market with promotable volumes begin by mid-December and go to the end of February. In total volumes, the U.S. have dropped 9% in season to 100 to 2018, 2019, and 11% on season 2019, 2020. A different situation is the organic supply, which grew 23% and 10% in the same periods. I would say that 21% of fresh Chilean blueberries arriving into the U.S. market were organic last season. Important to mention that uh, 
up to now, the, the volumes to the U.S. markets has been almost the same as the last last season, but uh, Asia has had uh, double the volume compared to the previous season. Also important to mention that 95% so far of our shipments to the U.S. so far is organic fresh blueberries. Hello, everybody. This is uh, Luis, manager for the Peruvian Blueberry Growers Association with the report from Peru up until uh, the end of week 41, that it's the week ending on October 11th. So up until this point of the season, 96% of all the blueberries exporters have been exported uh, fresh and only 4% frozen. Regarding the fresh exports, up until week 41, Peru has exported 180 million pounds, which represents 46% of what we are forecasting for this season. So we are reaching almost uh, the middle of our season up until the end of week 41. From this uh, total volume of 180 million pounds, 50% has been sent into the US, 36% has been sent into Europe, 13% has been sent into Asia, at that reminder, 1% has been sent into other destinations. What happened during the course of the last week, week 41? So week 41 has been the week that Peru has uh, shipped the, the highest volume up, up until this point of the season uh, with 24.5 million pounds shipped during the course of the week. Actually, that represents almost 15% of what has been shipped during the whole season. From those 24.5 million pounds, uh, 12.8 million pounds uh, have been shipped into the US. Uh, this volume is gonna be uh, arriving to market by the end of October. Regarding our frozen exports, uh, up until the end of week 41, Peru has shipped 7.1 million pounds, 7.1 million pounds. Uh, from that volume, 51% uh, has been sent into Europe. Actually, Europe is the main destination for frozen blueberries from Peru followed by the U.S. with 44% and a reminder, 5% into other destinations. Just another comment, Peru gained access to export fresh blueberries to Taiwan. And actually, the first shipment from Peru should be arriving in Taiwan on the following days. So that's a report from Peru. And good morning, everyone. I'm Jose Luis Bustamante from Aneberris from Mexico. Actually, the Mexico season didn't start yet, it's only a few shipments. We count around 300,000 pounds in the last 10 days. Uh, and this is coming from central Mexico, from uh, growers that prune early. And by early, I mean February or March, try to get in this type of window. In reality, the Mexico season should start in January and go for January, February, March, April, May, and being a, a peak of the season, we expect it being in March. And, and April, that's, that's our peak season. So far, so good, and we don't expect any disruptions. Once again, we have with us on the show, Dr. Eric Rim. Eric, in your presentation a few weeks ago, you shared a six-month blueberry trial that you conducted. Can you recap that for us, as well as give us some of your key findings? The reason that we did this study was to sort of take the next step forward. We had probably spent 10 years of research studying large populations and having people reporting to us what they consume on average in terms of blueberries and then looking at the health issues that 
developed after they did or did not eat blueberries. But the best way to really control that, to look at the health effects of blueberries is to randomize people, to give some people no blueberries, some people a half a cup and some people a cup, and to make sure they eat it every day to really truly look at the health effects of blueberries. And that's, you know, like an experiment. And it's something that everybody can relate to now because they're doing experiments on vaccines for COVID. You want to do an experiment where some people think they're getting it, but they're not. And so they don't act any differently than the people who truly are getting it. And that's what we did. We took 120 people that were at pretty high risk for diabetes because we wanted to look at the people that could benefit the most. And we gave them packets of freeze-dried blueberries. And either you got a placebo, which essentially had sugar in it that tasted like blueberries and looked like blueberries, but really was just sugar. Or you got a half a cup, which was half blueberries, half sugar. Or you got a full cup, which was all all blueberries. And that's just freeze-dried packets that you made for us. Thank you. <laughs> and we didn't, the scientists didn't know who was getting which one. I mean, once you got assigned to one of the three groups, the individual didn't know if they were getting the blueberry or not, and the scientists didn't know. So that way you can have a completely unbiased assessment of what happens. And, you know, we delivered them to packets so they would get enough packets for a month. The second month, you give them enough packets for the second month. And we had a bunch of clinical measures that we would have both at the beginning, at three months, and at six months to look at what is the impact of an experiment of essentially using the human as the experimental ground to look at what is the impact of blueberries. Obviously, you can't look at, will that change cancer risk? Because that you'd need to do for 15 or 20 years. So we had a look at just those markers that we think could change, that are important markers, but could change over six months with the hope that those markers would give us some insights into someone's future risk. That was the setup for the experiment. I can go into some of the results. Some of these things, you know, it's, it's science. You know, we had to bring people in and you put them on a a gurney and you have them all locked into these machines and you're doing a bunch of tests to look at the elasticity of their arteries and you can look at their a bunch of different parameters in their blood. We actually even collected stool samples because we wanted to look at the microbiome of how that changed with blueberries. So we were doing a lot of experiments, but the people kind of signed on for this. We gave them a small bit of money and they got a lot of the tests back. So there was benefit to them. So in some ways it was benefit for the participant and it was benefit for the scientists. And I think the most striking finding that we found in the end was really how important blueberries were to the elasticity of the blood vessels. If you think about blood having to go in and out of your arteries constantly, what you really need to have is those arteries to be constantly being able to sense the chemicals in the blood. Giving people blueberries a cup a day, their arteries in the end were so much more responsive. And those markers of responsiveness are really important for predicting someone's future risk of, of having a heart attack. So what we found is really what we think is we're now understanding some of the pathway that gets you to eating blueberries regularly and having a lower risk of a heart attack. Even in this position, you hear it and then you hear it again and you hear it a different way and, and it strikes you. And that part of your presentation certainly, I think, stuck out for others. And, and I appreciate you sharing it again here because, you know, as you think about what got us here in the uh, polyphenols discussion and the way I heard you lead into what makes blueberries attractive to study, the color, the attributes, and, and just hearing after six months 
that you can experience benefit like this. Even in my position, I'm now, like I said, eating more blueberries every day than I did because of that consistency and believing in the science that you're talking about and how important that baseline understanding. When you're working with that large of a sample study and over that period of time, what are those things that come up in the middle of something like that that make those types of studies difficult? Let me start at the beginning. This study would not have been possible, not just for the packets, but this was actually funded by the USHBC. So this is the type of study where we had a lot of good science before, but to really nail it down, that would have been a really hard study to get funded by NIH because it's so focused on a single food commodity. So I'll start by thanking the USHBC for allowing us to do it because it was a fair bit of money, but I really, I think it opened our eyes a lot about how this works and somewhat opened our eyes about these studies are hard to do, which is the reason that I partnered with Dr. Adian Cassidy, who is a nutritional biochemist, but who runs one of these clinical labs. At the time, she was in the UK, and she ran one of these labs where they have a lot of the setup. The infrastructure was already there, sort of, sort of the booths where you interview people and the gurneys and all the medical equipment was already there. Otherwise, that would have cost another $2 million. It would have been way too expensive. So I think you have to find the infrastructure for it because I couldn't have just started this myself in my backyard going, hey, let's do a study of 120 people. And the other thing was really the challenges of recruiting people. You know, as I said, some of these tests may be a little uncomfortable. Um, we're taking blood, we're doing these vascular measures, and we're taking people's stool samples. You know, we would go on radio in the UK. It's a relatively small town um, north of London in Norwich. We had a kind of convince people how important this was for science and what we were really trying to understand something because blueberry consumption is going up a lot in the UK. So we really wanted to convince people that this was for them so that they were truly getting some benefit out of it. And the other thing was the USHBC has funded a number of studies in the past with blueberry packets, but it's still not like, you know, the joy of eating a blueberry and feeling it and feeling the moisture in it and all the things that come from eating a blueberry. I obviously don't need to tell you that, but convincing people that, oh, you're going to get a packet of powder and, you know, trust us, it's blueberries. It just doesn't have the water in it. We had to come up with creative ways and constantly come up with different ways to get people to want to eat it every day. It's not that it tasted bad. It's just like, oh my God, I have to eat this powder thing again. So coming up with different things to put it on, whether it be, you know, yogurt or putting it in water or other things that we're mixing it with. So some of it was just a creativity of convincing people to stay in the study because the study doesn't mean anything if half the people drop out. So, you know, we got almost everybody made it to the end. And I credit the person who ran the study, the coordinator, because he was such a go-getter and he would drive everywhere and do anything to get people to stay in the studies. So yeah, it was great. It was really great. And just so we're clear about the powder, because some people probably aren't sure what we're talking about, but it's this dry powdered blueberry for the consistency of the method of study, right? So that the reason you're not offering fresh is because the difficulty of maintaining that consistency over that same period of time. So you may talk a little bit about why we use the powder. It is a scientific experiment. And an experiment, when you give someone an intervention, you want it to be the same thing every day. And even if I could get the best tasting blueberries every day, it would be impossible for them to be the same rightness, the same polyphenol content. So thanks to the USHBC, I think you took a ton or two tons of blueberries and freeze dried them all and then mixed them all together. So we knew every packet had the exact same amount of blueberry and the exact same amount of polyphenols in it. Going back to one of the things that you talked about, and I think ends up really 
connecting back to the promotion work. So, you know, the foundation of the health research work really leads to our ability to talk about blueberries in these positive communications in marketing and us being a research and promotion organization, creating that foundation. But one of the things that you talked about, because you're talking about it already, and that's how research works, like it starts, you know, there and it ends up in the marketplace. But Maybe you can, you know, take us further down the road of those healthy swaps and where blueberries might continue to be a healthy swap and and how do we do this? What does that mean and what's he talking about? And and so I really appreciated that part. So maybe you can talk a little bit more about where that's coming from and what you're talking about for blueberries. Yeah, I mean, it really came from a large group of us who do nutrition research. And some of it is sort of the history of our field. You know, whatever, back in the 60s or 70s, people would say, you know, don't eat fat. Okay, take fat out of your diet. Now, we've gotten rid of that because we know that there's certain parts of fat are really good. But we've always given dietary advice of don't eat red processed meat or do eat whatever. But we always forget that for the most part, people regulate their calories. So you can't just take something out that's 500 calories from your diet without putting something back. Otherwise, people are going to get hungry at nine o'clock and start snacking. So if you just go through your day saying, well, Dr. Rim told me to take these three things out and oh gee, I'm at the end of the day, I'm incredibly hungry. People can do that for a few days, but it, usually what happens is people start to compensate and end up eating too much. So I like to think about it as, you know, you're having a meal and what do you typically have in a meal? And if you're going to say, okay, I'm going to stop eating French fries or I'm going to start eating something else. Well, okay. If I stop eating French fries, what else should be on that plate instead? What can I swap it out with? And it doesn't have to be the exact same amount of calories, but it should be something so that if you're having whatever your entree is, and instead of having French fries, you're swapping something and you're putting something else there. And I think blueberries can actually be there for swapping something out of breakfast. It could be a side for you know a lunch or a dinner, and, and it could be a replacement for dessert where you still get all the satisfaction of, oh, gee, I took out something, but hey, I get to put blueberries in. So I am definitely not in marketing and I'm not a salesman for blueberries. I really consider myself as a scientific researcher, most of what is funded by NIH, but it just seems to me if you're going to get people to change their diets, you have to give them alternatives and you have to give them, in this case, it's a swap, but it's a healthy swap because it's blueberries. And so I think it'd be nice to figure out what we can take out. And maybe it's a school lunch program. You're taking out something that's going to make the kids buzz and instead swapping in blueberries. Yeah, I love that. I like I said, we walked away saying that as a team in the office, just a healthy, you know, a healthy swap. And, and talking about you know how that is related to a lot of the fad diets. You talked about that in your presentation too. That fad diets are very restrictive. They're narrowing you down to things you can and can't eat. But when it comes to what USHBC has to do, or what you know, the work that we do with you is that it has to be anchored in a foundation of science. So maybe you could talk a little bit about why that continues to be important. I'd love to hear your thoughts on how that works. Yeah, I mean, that's really an interesting point, Casey. I think you had noted to me previously, as did Dave Razelton, that the during this time, it seems to be that frozen blueberry sales have gone up. And, you know, I don't view that as a, necessarily a fad. Maybe it's opened people's eyes to, hey, I can come up with other ways to have blueberries during the year or during my meals that I never thought of before, but, but for the safety of it, people were buying more frozen blueberries because they wanted to have something at home and not go shopping very often. So in that sense, wow, that is kind of a cool opportunity that just happened that, you know, no one planned that with the pandemic. But from the science standpoint, as you noted, I, I sit on your USHBC Scientific Advisory Council with five other really solid scientists 
And then a number of blueberry growers and a number of other people from your industry and some from the USDA. And I am incredibly impressed with the quality of the review committee. And we don't fund everything that comes in. In fact, we fund a minority of studies that are funded just because our level of approval for science is the same level that we use when we're at NIH reviewing grants. We really want to have something where there is going to be translation and where it really makes a true difference in a large enough population. So I've learned a lot from those meetings from the other scientists around the table, but actually also the blueberry growers and those that have nurseries. It's really understanding not only the human health, but the varieties and the stability. And I think it's really been a win-win for everybody. And I think it's great that the USDA is also at the table. And occasionally we look to the USDA and say, you know, is this going to fly? And, you know, is this your level of approval also? So I've really been very appreciative to be part of that because I've learned so much more about blueberries, just seeing the types of other science that people are putting forward. To me, yeah, just hearing you connect that dot and just understanding the value of having that health research committee doing that work alongside people like yourself and the foundation it's set and the success that it's created and awareness for blueberries, where do we go from here? What's the next frontier in your mind? Where, where do we go with what we've got and what's next? <laughs> that is the $64,000 or $64 million question now, I guess. Um, that is something we discuss every year when this whole committee gets together that says, okay, you know, next year when we put out the call for new proposals, should we be targeted? Should we try to say, how are we going to get kids to eat? Are we going to try to get... You know, what is the impact of blueberries and in infants or, or cognitive function in the elderly or personalized nutrition? Are there certain people that will respond differently? So, you know, it is something that we talk about and every year we scratch our heads going, well, let's shoot for this. Or sometimes we even come up with something saying, you know, we didn't get any proposals this year in this particular area. We need to reach out with the top scientists in that area to say, we want to do something more in exercise. And so we reached out to one of the top exercise researchers who I knew and had worked with before and said, look, you have the infrastructure and platform. Can we test this among people who are regular or heavy exercisers to see if blueberries will help in recovery, will help in response? So some of it is internal and some of it is obviously we have the whole world of scientists that can submit grants. But I think from my standpoint, I hate to admit it, but I think some of it's going to go along the, the route of a little bit more personalizing nutrition is that knowing more about you and knowing more about your genetics and about your microbiome and about how much you weigh, all of your blood parameters will help me understand how much blueberries you should have and what would be the level where you would maximize your benefit. So I think we're not there yet. I think we'll be there in five to 10 years, but I think that's where some of the field is going. Well, let's talk about that field because you were critical in your presentation about the personalized nutrition agenda. I'd like to know more about that because when I hear it, I think, well, yeah, I mean, I'm sure that my intake of blueberries is going to be different than somebody else's intake. Your research showed that you saw it in urine samples being different for some people than other people. And But talk to me about how that science isn't playing out in the way that it otherwise would for the common person to think, yeah, of course, I'm unique. I, I need to eat strawberries, blueberries, and throw in some red meat, but it's different for others. Well, first of all, Casey, thank you for listening so carefully to my initial talk. I think besides my mother, you're probably, you know, pretty high up and someone who's listened so carefully. I guess I didn't need to be necessarily overly critical. It's, it's more that we're just not there yet, that people are sending their samples into 23andMe going, oh, this is going to be magic. And, you know, we are still pretty far away along. I mean, what we do know is if you eat a blueberry, 
that six to eight hours later, we can find 25 different metabolites in your bloodstream from that blueberry breaking down in your stomach and being partially absorbed by your microbiome. Those are 25 different compounds. Like you think we know how to map all those. Some of those probably are just excreted in the urine, but some of them probably are impacting the inside of our arteries. So yes, I like you, I want to know, should I have a half a cup or a cup? Maybe I'm not having enough blueberries, which I find personally hard to, hard to believe, but maybe I'm not having enough, or maybe there are people that all they need is a modest amount and we get huge benefit. And that is somewhat how we treat some forms of cancer. Now you take the tumor out and you map the tumor and you can say, this tumor is going to be responsive to this drug, but not these six drugs. So we're doing that already a little bit for cancer treatment, but for just healthy, free-living individuals where you don't know if you're trying to prevent diabetes, heart disease, colon cancer, or whatever, that's, that's a lot of mapping to do. And so I think some of it is just like there's sort of false hope out there that people are sort of grabbing onto these infomercials going, aha, this is one thing that's going to save me forever. So I think we're just not there yet. Well, I did like that part that suggests more is better than less. So if you don't know, eat more, you know, and, and, you know, that frees me up to go ahead and consume way more than a cup if I feel like it. So I appreciated that. So I, I, again, thank you for your dedication to our industry, its efforts. And certainly, you know, I don't think we'd be where we're at without people like yourself who have committed the time and resources. It's not just about us cutting checks. It takes somebody like yourself to want to care about it and have a personal passion for it. So we really appreciate you know all that you've done and, and will continue to do as part of our team and the time for joining us today on the podcast. Great. Thank you, Casey. And thank you for the committee to Leslie Wada and to Dave Brailton who have sort of been running this and heading it up. It's really been a great experience. And in the end, I've actually learned a lot about the, <laughs> learned a lot about the healthfulness of blueberries. So it's helped me in figuring out how to incorporate blueberries into a healthy diet. Absolutely. Hashtag healthy swap. <laughs> well, that was a fantastic discussion with Dr. Rim. I appreciate his time and, and, and spending a little bit more time with us uh, talking about the work he's been doing and certainly the work we're doing at USHBC to kind of pull out continued health benefits for blueberries. And I hope that, you know, this inspires you to not just eat more blueberries yourself, but to encourage all of the people we work with to understand that this research is there and it's continuing to be done. And we did the diabetes study. And these are the things that we're continuing to pursue as an industry in order to continue to drive demand. And so the more of our industry who can understand how to translate this research to their market and to their customers and ultimately to consumers, uh, obviously the more successful blueberries will be seen and perceived in both the marketplace and with consumers. You know, the other thing clearly that I appreciate that he pointed out is that it would be difficult to do this research without USHBC. That committee that he talked about, the dedication of those folks that come together, Dave and Leslie and, and the whole gang that sit down and do the hard work of going through what is, you know, it could be some pretty wonky stuff, of course, right? And that there is a team of people who each year dedicate their time and talent to trying to figure this out for our industry and, and making sure that the dollars are spent in a way that really helps to renew and encourage the future of the blueberry industry. And so that wasn't lost on me when he said it. And certainly in my short tenure here in the business, what a foundation that's been built by that system of consistent dedication of 
good thinking and process. So I'm really confident that the work we're doing, you know, obviously hearing from Dr. Rim himself is focused on that. It's not like we're, we're looking for some snapshot. We're looking for uh, a future of, of deep appreciation for what blueberries bring to the table. Thanks so much for listening. We'll be back next week with more innovation, collaboration, family, and hard work right here on the Business of Blueberries. Blueberries.